0: I'm very happy to introduce tonight's moderator, Elise Buick. Ms. Buick is president and chief executive officer of United Way of Greater Los Angeles. She is the first woman in history to serve as president of the organization. She was formerly uh, its acting president and chief operating officer and has been with the organization since 1994. Under her leadership, United Way of Greater Los Angeles launched and implemented a new community investment plan and key social reports on literacy, diversity, and other issues We're very happy to have and please welcome Ms. Elise Buick.
1: Thank you. It's so great tonight to see so many people that are here and interested in this issue. And we have a big topic in front of us, Can LA Solve Homelessness? And you're in for a real treat tonight because we have three great panelists, um, one from Los Angeles on my far right, Mike Alvarez from Skid Row Housing Trust, so he, you're going to hear what's happening right here in LA, but we also have Becky Canis, for, she's the Director of Innovations for Common Ground in New York, and Chet Gray is the Homeless Service Directors for the Washington, D.C. Business Improvement District. So before we uh, hear from our panel, I just wanted to make a couple of opening comments. Um, As Greg mentioned, the United Way, two years ago, we launched a new plan called Creating Pathways Out of Poverty, and one of our ten goals that we're holding ourselves accountable to is ending homelessness in Los Angeles, so it's been a great journey for us to get involved in this issue and to learn a lot, but I did not know a lot about the homeless issue. Uh, We we serve the entire county, and what I find as I go around the county is that many people do not know about the issue but they are interested to learn. So I'm just going to share with you a little bit of background uh, to give us some context. Uh, We we were in a crisis before this economic crisis hit and I think that's one of the the bigger challenges we have in in getting people to understand the levels of poverty that our families are facing. Uh, The foreclosures in our county are up over 200 percent and we know that the unemployment rate has climbed as well. So before we even went into this recession, we had 73,000 people that were living on the streets and we just did the most recent homeless count and we'll have those numbers coming out but I think we're all very nervous that those numbers are going to go up quite substantially because we know that many people end up on the streets when they lose a job, they face a health care crisis, and we know that the the strain on affordable housing has even increased. I think the other uh, thing that we found, and many of you may know, we launched a walked-in homelessness uh, two years ago, uh, was that the face of homelessness has changed quite dramatically. Uh, It's it's veterans, it's families, uh, 40 percent of the population in the county is now women and children, We didn't see that as recently as the late 80s, so we know that this population is changing quite significantly and we need to be on top of that. We do know that this winter there was an 87% increase in homeless families that are seeking shelter and when we did the count in 2007, families comprised about a quarter of our homeless population. And then one third of our population are chronically homeless, and these are folks that have multiple uh, issues that they 're dealing with, and they usually have been on the streets for many years and that can be a chronic health issue, it can be a mental illness, it can be a type of addiction so uh, we 're going to talk about all these things tonight um, but what i, if I as i 've come into this issue, I think what is is most um, encouraging to me is that this is an issue where we know how to solve it. And that's what you're going to hear about tonight. Many cities across the country, including the two that are up here, have actually reduced their homeless populations. So I would say that that um, in the context of all these numbers and statistics that may seem overwhelming, we do know what it takes to get people off the streets permanently. So. I hope you'll uh, jot down questions and learn more about that. You're going to hear some amazing stories tonight. Um, And then the other thing I would say is that I know these are unprecedented times with this economic conditions, but I have seen just such an amazing outpouring of people wanting to get more involved. And I think the fact that all of you are here tonight speaks volumes about that. So I know, as I look out this room, uh, that as we hear about solutions and learn about this together tonight, that we can all move to action to make this happen in L.A. So let me just tell you briefly a couple uh, of facts about who's up here. So Chet Cray is next to me, and uh, Chet was a former Navy Reserve Chaplain, and after spending 30 years in the religious sector, he began working in the mental health field specializing in addiction and recovery. And he joined the DC BID team when he realized that the solution to homelessness had to be a collaboration between the business community, the faith community, law enforcement, social services, and government. So please join me in welcoming Chet. (laughs) Next to him is, is Becky, and she joined Common Ground in 2003. And she had quite a small task of just reducing street homelessness in Times Square by two-thirds in three years. Um, she launched the Street to Home Initiative, which was a small pilot program that really revolutionized New York City's approach to solving street homelessness. And her their approach was quite unique, and you'll hear more about it. But they really targeted the folks who've been on the streets the longest, who had the most urgent health conditions and they saw homelessness decline in Times Square by 87% and 43% of the surrounding neighborhood. So we're very lucky to have Becky here. Join me in welcoming her. And Mike is homegrown here from LA and does great work at the Skid Row Housing Trust and uh, Mike has been a partner with the United Way, they do amazing work, and he's really helped build the trust into one of the leading organizations that provide permanent supportive housing and implementing a housing first model in Southern California, and he'll tell you a little bit tonight about a project called Project 50 where we're looking at modeling some of the work in New York and D.C. to bring it to life in L.A., so welcome Mike. So I'd like to open it more on a personal note, uh, just to ask each of you, how did you get personally connected to this issue? What was it that brought you to this work? So Chuck, can we start with you?
2: Drugs and alcohol. Uh, (laughs) I'm an Episcopal priest, and we started homeless shelters in Atlanta. Jerusalem House, homeless shelter for people with AIDS. Nicholas House, homeless people for uh, families, homeless shelter for families. So uh, I've just been involved in it for 40 years now. I left the church about 10 year, 15 years ago, got tired of that work, and started working in the mental health recovery area, and got and stayed with working with homeless people. So it's been a lifelong journey. Things have greatly improved in this country for homeless people in the last 20 years. Uh, of course, homelessness did not exist that, like it is now in the 80s. It, it developed in the 80s.
3: My turn. Um, uh, I came from the military. I was an army officer. And my understanding of homelessness was uh, that it was just people who needed a job. And uh, very, I was very ignorant on the issues. Uh, but I, I, I liked being part of an organization that, where there was a sense of purpose. Uh, but I had reservations, even though I did nine years, that, hey, our government sometimes asks the army to do things that I might not believe in. And as a soldier, you really don't get, get to pick and choose which wars you fight. So um, in, in 2000, I got out, and I spent a, a brief period of time as a stockbroker, um, uh, which was not particularly <laughs> rewarding for me personally. No offense if that's what you do. I just, I just couldn't get into it. Uh, and I knew I wanted to do something where I woke up every morning, and I was uh, doing something uh, part of something bigger than myself, and, and something I could just uh, believe in with no reservations, unlike in my military. So keep the part of. Uh, being a part of service of something greater, but with no reservations at all, and when I sort of opened you know opened my chakras up to that or whatever, uh, very quickly, and i didn 't really care what it was, uh, but pretty shortly thereafter, uh, I think through fate, I found my way to common ground. And uh Roseanne, my boss had a job to, for me to reduce street homelessness by two thirds I think I was the only person stupid enough to apply <laughs> and, uh, and um and i haven't haven't looked back at all, and on i I feel so lucky every day to get to do work that I really believe in
4: uh For me, it was also a very personal issue. I want to make sure we look over to the folks on the far right because we're oriented to look this way, uh, where the panel is so Um, For me, I became a single parent in the mid-70s and uh, had to find housing for myself and my son and somehow it seemed easier if you had a a giant dog to find an apartment, at this time it was in West L.A., than it was for a a man and a child. And so I became very interested in in why that was and and housing issues in general uh, when I went back to UCLA to finish uh, my education in urban planning. I Focused on housing and became aware of a lot of the issues that remain with us today. Um, started after grad school, started working in um, Santa Monica, doing affordable housing uh, with Community Corporation, which is still in existence today. Um, and uh, around 1990, had the opportunity to come down in Skid Row to Skid Row um, in a new organization, Skid Row Housing Trust, uh, and I'll never forget my first day, um, I think my reaction was geez, I what is this place? Because I hadn't been in that area for a long time. It was a, quite a shock to see the number of people out of the street. Um, um, but because we were very much of a can-do organization, even back in those days when we were just sort of wanting to accomplish something uh, very tangible, uh, we got into it very strongly. And I think there's something interesting about this field once you get into it, it's very compelling um, and you just want to keep doing more and improving what you are doing. So that was my introduction uh, into housing.
1: That's great. Thank you for sharing those. So we'll shift gears maybe and give the audience a flavor. Chet, can we start with you about, um, I know D.C. has in fact reduced their homeless population. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like?
2: Washington is a city that has 20% of its people living under the poverty level. 36 pe- 36% of the people in Washington are functionally illiterate. That does not include Congress.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and, and those are not undocumented workers, either. People quickly say, well, Washington has so many Ethiopian and Latino people that it's, it's not. They were not even counted in this. Um, the city is very expensive to live in. The homelessness is a real problem in D.C. 6,000 people are homeless every night. The population of D.C. is less than 600,000. Uh, so we have uh, not as significant a problem as Los Angeles County has, but for a city that's 90 square miles, it's a lot of people. I work for the business community and we started when we the bid, when this bid that I worked for started, they realized that homeless people were part of the city. They're uh, brothers and sisters of everyone. They're citizens of the city. 85, 80 to 85% of the homeless people in D.C. are native-born Washingtonians. So it's a problem of the city. We realized that and we began to see addressing the issues of business organ- business development, improvement districts, address the issues of the city, and so homelessness is an issue of the city. We began with having a service center to uh, engage people in the continuum of care of homeless, for homeless people. We realized that we were babysitting and not really solving any problems. Our whole concept is find solutions to homelessness, not maintain people on the street. I mean, it's important to give a person a blanket and a sandwich and, you know, Hello, but that's not helping them. That is just making their long-term death shorter by just letting them stay on the street. So we realized that there are solutions to it, so we needed to get involved in the solutions. And what we're doing in the city of Washington is that we have a clinically-oriented outreach team. All of our outreach people are, are Social workers, master's level social workers working in the street one on one with homeless people. In the last 18 months, we have reduced the number of people on the streets in, in a section of D.C. where most of the homeless people live by 40%, 42%, which is amazing for a city that two, three years ago didn't even know the, how to address homeless issues. I mean, the city of Washington is terribly dysfunctional. We have the city government. But everything that we do is controlled by Congress. So can you imagine having to answer to some of the... Anyway. (laughs) I was trying not to use a bad word, so I just will move on. I mean, some of these guys are jackasses. and and, uh, So, uh, you know, trying to run a city and trying to develop program with Congress is... An intervention is a terrible situation. So, the city in the last two and a half years has really begun to see the issues of homelessness and seek solutions. Becky's outfit, Common Ground, has been a great asset to the city of Washington, coming to help the city, the city administration, the city government, to get its act together. It's been a long hard process. Seven years ago when I started with the downtown bid, the concept for homelessness for most people was chase them out of here. You know, it's a, made it illegal, you know, it's illegal, get them out of here. They're terrible kinds of people. The city has a different attitude now. The city is not embracing homelessness, but it's realizing that there are solutions and so we need to be about the job of finding those solutions and housing people. In, eight, in the last 18 months we have placed almost 600 people in housing, support, supportive housing. Housing Putting a person into housing with support services, it works. And so we've, we are proving that in the city of Washington. Moving people from the streets into housing. Ten, five years ago, if you were in D.C., you could not walk 50 feet without running into a homeless person. In, on the mall and around the, around the monuments. Today, that's just not true. It's really, we've really begun to change the city.
1: So, I just want to clarify, Chet, you're a business organization and you hired social workers to do outreach. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing model. So, Becky, can we turn to you and can you share with the group uh, the experience in New York and how you were
3: able to move so quickly? Um, sure. Um, well, uh, there was a very clear goal that was based off of what they had accomplished in England. England's Rough Sleepers Initiative had reduced um, what they call rough sleeping or street homelessness by 75% over either four or five years. And uh, when my boss heard about it, she said, well, we should do that, and uh, hired me. And I think my second week on the job, put me on a plane over to England and said, go figure out what they did, and come back and do it here. Uh, but a very, very different system over there than we had in New York City. Um, but uh, we, we only had private funding. We had money from J.P. Morgan Chase uh, Foundation. And our um, our local business improvement district supported us, and later on, some other foundations gave us money. We did not have any government money for the first two years, uh, which allowed us to be really lean and mean. Uh, We uh, we and 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 very focused on the mission, very focused on the outcomes and and reductions in homelessness. um, With very much a blank slate, almost everybody we hired weren't professionals in this homeless industrial complex. So we were all sort of neophytes to it with, with uh, open minds about it. Um, what we learned through a lot of trial and error over a three-year pilot period, uh, to, to make a long story short, is uh, people who've been on the streets, um, they, they may not necessarily want to go to a shelter. They may not necessarily want to stop drinking alcohol. They may not want to take psychiatric medications. Uh, they may not want to go to a shelter. but Almost every single person I've met except two want housing. And if, you, if we initiated the conversation that way, hi, my name is Becky, I work with Street to Home. Um, has anyone ever talked with you about housing before? Would you like to talk with me about trying to get you into housing? The first thing that they would say is like, no, no, no. And I was like, no, no, I mean housing, like your own apartment. And they'd be like, huh, You know, really? <laughs> like they didn't, it was like too good to be true. They didn't actually believe that that was what we meant. And actually at the time, I didn't really have housing to offer them. This was a, um, a big leap of faith for all of us. And I had told them that. I was like, well, I don't really have the housing, <laughs> but I'm willing to work with you on getting the housing. And one person at a time, we, just, we all just slogged through this horrific bureaucracy uh, where at every turn it was like, oh, that's not the wrong form. Or, um, oh, wow, well, no, you need to have that on the blue piece of paper. Or, no, I don't have the authority to do that. You have to talk to the person in that cubicle. And it was just really um, a, a, just this, uh, uh, Rube Goldberg thing, you know, machine of how to get someone into housing. But we, we never lost track of that, and we did house people directly off the streets, which was really pretty unheard of in New York City, uh, and, and blew away this sort of whole mindset that people have to go through these really complicated hoops to ask our most disabled people who are at the highest risk of dying in our whole society to negotiate very complicated bureaucracies, much less. You know, take care of things that are on this level of Maslow's hierarchy of need, like self actualization, before you've taken care of these things is really kind of crazy. Um, so, the other thing I think that's a little more nuanced than Inside Baseball, but I think this audience can deal with it, is uh, that housing people, isn't, housing people isn't enough for census reduction either. You have to house the right people. There's a whole bunch of different manifestations of homelessness. Um, from some people, most people are just homeless for one day, and a lot of people are homeless for just a couple weeks. But there's some people who have been homeless for decades. And if you, it's, it's almost tempting, I think, to put a lot of energy into people who have been homeless for a very short period of time, because it's A, they're less disabled, and B, it's more rewarding, and C, like you might actually have something to show at the end of the day for what you did. Um, we turned that completely on our he- its head. And what we learned was uh, that we had to force our workers and the system to orient pretty much all the king's horses and all the king's men went to the people who had been on the streets the very longest, who also had the highest risk of dying. Um, and when we, when we subverted that whole order and that whole system to where the next person who's been ho- homeless the longest, and we're talking 30 years here, you know, uh, with six disabling conditions gets the next unit of housing that we have. That's when we started seeing the census reductions that we saw in Times Square. Um, and uh, we were very, very focused on Times Square. And we did hit that 87% reduction. Uh, it was not all pretty. It was a lot of trial and error. But when the city, the biggest city in the country, you know, right, saw in, in, a, in a relatively small area, absolutely, if any of you have been to Times Square, all of you will nod and say, yeah, I didn't see anybody on the streets there, I think, except for the two people that I know of. Um, uh, but when the city saw that, they said, hey, that's what we're going to pay for. We're gonna they took all of their money back that they were spending on People doing things that were that complicated process stuff. They they took all that money back and said, "If you want our money, you need to do what they did." Um, so we said, "Well, we'd like to do that with some city money now." Uh, and and we now have responsibility for all of Brooklyn and Queens. So we went from 25 blocks to about 25 square or 250 square miles. Um, and in the first 15 months of New York City doing Street to Home, you know, our, our methodologies, uh, the The three out of five boroughs of New York City achieved the two-thirds reduction goal a year early. So this stuff really works. And the other two boroughs, Manhattan just kind of has more. They're going to catch up. They think they're on track to hit it this year. So we're we're fairly confident that before Mayor Bloomberg leaves office, which was his goal, he did a five-year plan to end homelessness, not a tenure. He wanted it to be solved on his watch that there'll be a two-thirds reduction of street homelessness in the whole city. To me.
1: And can you um, just elaborate a little bit? I think a lot of people might be familiar with shelter systems. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those systems do require that you not drink or be drug-free before you come into them. Mm-hmm. Was there a transition in that system in New York? You know, can you talk a little bit about the difference between the shelter system and then the permanent supportive housing system?
3: Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so the uh, most shelters and most places have curfews and lots of rules, and they're they're not punitive, but they're 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 uh, you're still homeless. You know, if you're in a shelter, you're still homeless. I would say that. Um, and so a lot of people on the streets had had a bad experience for whatever reason, and they um, they're not all horrible at all. There, there's there's plenty of really good shelters, but you're still actually homeless. It's not what you really want. Um, so. The, the, the proper use, I'm, I'm not saying there shouldn't be any shelters anywhere, ever. The proper use of a shelter is that very short period of time where someone very quickly then goes back and gets on their feet and goes back out. Not places where people live for 2, three, four, five, 10, 20 years. Um, so in New York, there's a very deliberate effort within the shelter system as well to, to house the people who have been in the shelter the longest and, and get them housed. And they used to have 1,400 people in the shelter system who had been there for over two years. That number's down to less than 700 now. So they're just they're, they're just, they're wheedling away at that. But that's completely different from permanent supportive housing. So permanent supportive housing really is your own lease. You come and go as you please. You know, in our places you can have a pet. Um, and uh, there's also the supports. So, you pay one third of your rent, whatever that is, and one third of zero is zero, you know, for the math majors out there. Uh, but, you know, you pay one third of your money towards rent, um, and you get to come and go as you please. And then, if you want it, support is available. So, there is a social worker or professionals who are able to help you with whatever it is you want to do towards self actualizing, reconnecting with your family, getting a job, volunteering, learning how to read, going back to school, whatever the things you want to do, there's people that help you do that. And, um, Supportive housing is, is it's a, it's a it's actually less expensive than shelter, which is surprising to a lot of people. Um, it costs less, and by the way, it's also costs way less than leaving someone on the streets. So the most expensive option at all of, of all pretty much is for people to be on the streets. That costs about forty to forty-five thousand a year. So um, so housing really is the answer to homelessness. There's really no way to get around ending homelessness without without the housing piece. Okay. So
1: my, oh, go ahead. In Washington,
2: it costs $4,000 every time someone is booked for anything. It costs $2,000, well 1800 to take someone to the hospital in an ambulance. It's, Housing First is practical money saving for the politician. I mean, regardless of the, regardless of, there's no such word as irregardless, regardless of the the situation of, of uh, you know, morality and goodness and all of that. The issue is there should—it's a practical reason to do it for the for everybody. And you can add on to why you want to serve homeless people. That's personal. But the reality is, it's a cheaper, more humane way of dealing with people by getting them into housing. Uh, we have you have a much higher percentage rate. In, in New York than we do. We're, we're dealing with a lot of crack addiction, alcohol, and mental health issues in D.C. Again, that's not connected to Congress. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, we're dealing with, uh, with people with serious challenges. Yet we have about an 87% success rate over the last five years of housing people. So.
1: So, Mike... Uh, give us some hope of what's going on in Los Angeles. and I, I you speak about your own experience, but also I know that recently there's been an effort to really identify the 50 most chronically homeless people in L.A., and I know you've played a lead role in that, so if you could talk about that as well.
6: Yes, that would be Project 50.
4: I'd be happy to talk about that. Let me just go back a little bit to um, the early work that the trust did. So we were about primarily preserving the remaining Residential hotel units that existed in the downtown area. Uh, we knew that if those units were demolished or otherwise lost, that would actually make more homeless people, not less. So our goal was to buy those buildings, renovate them, put them under long term nonprofit stewardship, keep the rents low, and make them affordable to people who had limited incomes. As we um, did more of this work, uh, we began to become more aware of the fact that a lot of the folks that were moving into these buildings had all sorts of issues uh, that affected their ability to, be, to uh, remain stable. Uh, and so we began to recognize that we needed to complement the housing with services. This is before there was much discussion, and we certainly weren't aware of it, of the idea of supportive housing or housing first. We had never heard those terms back in the early 90s. Um, as we did more and more buildings, we began to recognize a greater and greater services need for the people, and, and we now know that um, they've had issues all along. Uh, which we now are more familiar with. They've, they've been struggling with men- mental health issues, uh, with addiction issues, with medical needs that have been unaddressed, and typically they would uh, respond to those issues only in crisis, um, where they would go to the emergency room or have, when they have difficulty breathing or have some sort of other medical or psychiatric emergency. Um, and as by the mid to late 90s, we began to become more aware of this idea. And, and, and I would say at that time, when we had very few services in our buildings, our stability rates and our turnover rate was, was very high. A lot of the folks just couldn't maintain their housing uh, because we didn't have adequate services to help them become stabilized. As we became more familiar with issues around the country when, when the idea of, of supportive housing uh, came along because what, we had been, what we'd been trying Um, during those early years was something that we could probably now call housing only, um, which didn't work. Uh, It didn't work for a lot of people. It didn't work for too many of the people that moved into our buildings. Um, Supportive housing became more widely known. Um, It certainly worked in in terms of our, our own evolution of thinking and the idea of housing first also became a very important one that we ascribe to today. And so supportive housing as has been mentioned, is really about three issues. One, that it's permanent. So you have an apartment, you're a tenant. Two, that it's affordable. And this is often uh, accomplished through rental subsidies where you pay that 30% of your income for rent. And three, that you have access to services, whether they're nearby or on site. Our most recent model um, in which we target chronically homeless folks, we try and put those services right on site. So in our most recent buildings, we've got mental health services. We've got recovery services, benefits advocacy, um, and other case management and other services to help folks remain stabilized. What we see is that the better the services are, um, the the greater chances of people remaining stably housed or leaving for another uh, good opportunity if they reunite with their families or whatever the case may be. And so we've become uh, much, I think we've become part of of a national movement that speaks to this issue of housing first. And housing first is the idea that house people first. The old model and, and the old way of thinking was that there was this sort of linear model where you'd go to shelter, then you'd go to transitional housing, and then you'd go to permanent housing. And I think often the permanent housing was used as a reward if you resolved all of your issues. This is sort of you got over your mental health issues and you dealt with your recovery issues and, and, and your reward was to go into permanent housing. Uh, not a good model. Um, and, and I think what Housing First does is turn that on its head and say just what the name implies, Housing First. And, and it's, the basic idea is that you cannot adequately deal with those very serious issues, whether they be medical issues, mental health issues, recovery issues, when you're living on the chaos, with the chaos of the streets, or going from shelter to shelter to shelter, or being arrested on the streets and going to jail and released. And that's what we see. Uh, And I think the federal government some time ago recognized, gee, the chronically homeless population is a relatively small portion of the total population of homeless. But they're the ones that keep cycling over and over and over and over driving those costs up with an outcome that's nowhere. They're back out onto the streets and in the meantime you've spent lots of money in crisis and emergency services, typically at the county level, and you haven't really resolved the issue. So uh, I think Housing First speaks to that issue. Get people into Housing First, then have the services available. Uh, They're not mandatory, but they're made available so the engagement and the skill of the service providers becomes very important how to reach out, make people feel comfortable uh, to really receive those services. And when we see that happen, it is an absolutely transformational process. You see people who, you sort of the before and after is amazing. The, the folks who have been out on the street, and I'm talking about people who have been out on the street. Now, it, it's probably hard for us to imagine spending one night or a week or a month. These are people who have been out on the street for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, part of the problem is that once you're there it's very difficult to get out and I think the example that, that, that Common Ground uh, has shown you got to go get those people because the system is so complicated it's hard to find your way out. It's hard for us to figure out all of the various systems. We do this for a living. It's very complicated. So for a person who's struggling with a mental illness or struggling with an addiction or has other issues that cause them to become hom- homeless in the first place it's very difficult to navigate uh, through those systems to get out. It's, it's, it's a Herculean task. Uh, and so that is supportive housing with onsite integrated services and housing first, get them into housing, then you can deal with those issues when they're stably housed. Almost impossible to do it the other way around, which has been the model that we've followed for a long time. Uh, we became involved in Project 50, which was spearheaded by uh, Supervisor Zev Yerslowski, uh, who I think um, visited New York and, uh, again, spoke to the uh, Common Ground people and to Becky's boss. Um, and sort of a light bulb went off, and there was a subsequent meeting out here in uh, Los Angeles where they brought people from all over the country, and I think at the end of that, the takeaway was, you got to do this in LA. You just got to do it. You got to figure out how to go get those people, how to dedicate the services, which typically come from the county or from other public agencies, the feds, whoever it might be, um, to make those services available. Create a pilot program. Somebody threw out the number 50, and that became the target uh, for what. There was nothing scientific about it. Uh, it was just Project 50, and so. We were engaged as the housing provider. So we provide the housing and the rental subsidy. Uh, There are other services uh, partners, uh, some from nonprofit organizations, uh, some from the county itself, some from other nonprofits that provide the primary medical care, the recovery services, the mental health, the case management, and so forth. Uh, We have some case management services in there as well, but we house these folks in our existing uh, portfolio of buildings. And what we see, and much like what is shown from all the research from across the country, is that when people have an opportunity to get off the street, to get into housing, to get those services, that the outcomes are much better. And so the preliminary data from year one of Project 50 shows a significant decline in emergency room visits, in um, hospital visits, and in incarceration in the county jail, which when you think about it is totally logical. So. Um, this, is a, this is based on, 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 let's look at a new model, let's forget about all the impediments and the challenges and, and the different color forms and why you can't do something, and let's figure out how to make it work. And I think, you know, it was important for us in Los Angeles. Um, I think we've, we've fallen behind on this issue. We've ignored it for far too long, and other cities have made real progress uh, in terms of how they respond to homelessness. And I think the good thing is that we've listened we've listened to those best practices, we've listened to those good ideas and those innovations and we put them to an effect. So to go back to the very first question that Elise asked, you know, can we solve homelessness in Los Angeles and I think the answer is yes. There are a lot of things that we have to do differently than what we have been doing, but I think we can solve it. I think, I think to reiterate uh, what you said Elise, there are solutions. We just have to figure out how to make those solutions more across the board and how to take these solutions to scale uh, so that we can actually reach the, the 73,000 people not all at once but in bits. We, we need to figure out how to address those issues in certain geographic uh, areas and we can accomplish it. So um, yes.
1: Okay. We're going to hear from our audience in just a minute. I want to ask one uh, final question before we go to the audience. Um, we've talked a lot about housing, but in, as we've come into this and learned about it, uh, talk about the role of public will in your communities. Um, we hear a lot around this issue of NIMBYs, which is not in my backyard, and there's been a pretty uh, prominent example in Hollywood where they were going to cite a permanent supportive housing project and the residents just came out and said, I don't want those, those people uh, living in my community how have what are your thoughts about the whole public will and then be issue and then we're going to turn over the audience
2: well we in DC we we're housing people in scattered sites people in apartment houses all over the city we have two people in the Watergate most <laughs> expensive housing in the in the, in the city <laughs> we house people all over the city but now the city, of the, the city council of D.C. has taken a stand in saying there will be housing built here, here, and here on public land, period. It can happen if there's political will for it. If it happened in Atlanta when we opened Jerusalem House, people fought us and fought us and fought us. We went all the way to the state Supreme Court. And, but the, if there's political will, it can happen. And there has to be political will. And the political will has to come from the people who elect the politicians, hold their feet to the fire. That's what's happened in DC. Seven years ago, the politicians and the, the city council in DC didn't even want to hear about homelessness. But with the business community, my, my business improvement district represents 24% of the, 23.7% of the tax revenue of the city. So they're going to listen to us, but they're going to listen to, politi- uh, and most of the people that are in that, that business community do not live in D.C., but they pay their taxes in D.C., business taxes. So it's forcing politicians to do what is right, and it takes the will of the people to do that. That's happened in Atlanta and in D.C.
3: Um, sure, I think uh, people, the, the will of the people is incredibly important. Um, on a practical note, in New York, we have the 311 call system. Do you have that yes. here? So, one of the things you can do with the 311 is report someone on the streets, someone on the streets who needs assistance. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, and, and we're contractually obligated as outreach teams to respond and call back to the concerned citizen within one hour. And we do, and we let you know what happened. Um, so I think that's a way citizens can be engaged. Uh, I would just concur 100% with Chet that, um, that it, it's, it's critical for elected officials to know this is something that matters to you and that you're a little bit educated about it and that you know that housing is what ends homelessness and you want them to be making sure that that happens uh, and when is it going to happen and what's going on with this guy on my block um, and, and out of concern um, or whatever is motivating you. They need to know that it's upsetting you. Um, and uh, around the NIMby issue, the um, number one thing that we can do as an industry we 're we're housing providers ourselves is create a really good product so to make beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful places where anybody would want to live uh, and we, we we strive very hard to do that and if you 're ever in New York, I welcome you to pop in on one of our houses or uh, one of our houses um, and uh, once the community, there's actually a study out that shows that property values within 500 feet or 500 yards of supportive housing in New York went up. It's actually good for property values to be near supportive housing. And, and I guess my last take on that is uh, it's really your choice. Uh, and I, I don't have my pictures, but I have I carry around a lot of before after pictures. And uh, you can have just imagine in your head the, the just most disheveled uh, person. Um, you know, uh, it, on the sidewalks out, outside of your apartment, or they can be you know, your neighbor and a friend, uh, and once people are housed, they're not homeless anymore. So <laughs> if you allow the housing in your community and then insist that the people who are on the streets from your community get that housing, um, that would be the smartest thing that a citizen could ask for, I think, is yes, we have to have this supportive housing in our neighborhood, and you darn well better put the people from our streets in that housing, otherwise they're going to put someone from someone else's neighborhood in the streets in that housing. So, um, you know, it, I would say that it's in it's in all of our best interest to have that. And supportive housing is going up on my block in uh, New York City, and I'm I'm thrilled about it. You know, I'm absolutely thrilled about it. So, okay.
4: uh, I agree that we have to do uh, a, a better job as those of us who provide housing. We use some private money, but also some public money. And I think people who use public funds for this or any purpose need to be held accountable for how they use those funds. We believe that we need to do the best possible job that we can to develop and design functional and attractive housing. I I absolutely agree with you. I think people, um, when they can actually see you run the buildings in a way that improves the neighborhood um, and the design improves the neighborhood, that a lot of that fear factor goes away. But I also think that, and I'm so happy to see so many people here tonight about this issue um, here, um, because it's up to you to actually help make that happen. Um, If you would like to see what supportive housing looks like, um, please see me after the discussion. I'd be happy to give you my card, welcome you down to see our buildings, um, which actually were featured in the Los Angeles Times article about three weeks ago in the home section, um, interestingly enough. And um, it's because we put a lot of effort into designing our buildings so they are functional, so they work for the people that live in them, um, but also are attractive and make people feel good when they live there, or make people feel good about seeing this building from across the street or driving past. So I think we have a responsibility and we should be held accountable But what I'm asking you all to do is to talk this issue with your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, um, and say, hey, this is a good idea for us, the city, collectively. This is a good thing that we begin to address an issue that has clearly gotten away from us here in Los Angeles. And we all need to be part of the solution. Um, The people who do this um, day in and day out can't do it alone. We need the political will. Uh, We need the popular support. Um, We need uh, the the pressure that collectively we can bring to bear to solve this problem. They've solved it in other cities, as we know, Um, to a greater extent. We need to catch up, and so I hope we can all do that.
1: Well, I live in Echo Park, and we talk about this all the time because we've now become
3: a lot of downtown homeless are coming to us, and the city council is still wrangling for many years even about inclusionary housing.
5: So to get this kind of, a, where does your housing come from? The common ground in New York. Where do they go? You say you didn't have, where?
3: where? Where's the house? Uh, where do you get
5: with uh, uh, we're desperate
3: for housing here in Los Angeles. Um, in some cases we, we reclaim buildings that are in a, a really bad state of disrepair and we, we renovate them. We, we purchase them and renovate them and make them really, really nice. Um, in some cases, we just build on vacant land. And in other cases, we do scatter site, like uh, Chet's talking about, where we rent apartments, any apartment we can find for under $900 and we'll scoop it up. We'll scoop it up because we can put someone in there and, and it can be a subsidized apartment. So really everywhere. We've actually even reclaimed a flop house on the Bowery and um, completely modernized it, uh, which is generally not really nice housing and made it really pretty nice actually. So, um, Anywhere we can find housing, I think it's safe to say we will try to buy it and make it available for, for homeless and low income folks anywhere.
5: Yeah. We have a question over here to your left. Hi. My particular area of interest in work has been um, homeless women in Santa Monica. Um, many of whom turn out to be uh, seriously mentally ill, far more than I ever anticipated. So I'm really so in support of your uh, notion of the supportive services on site for many who need it. And I have two questions, uh, I guess, with, with them in mind. And it's an expan- The first question is an expansion of the of the question the woman just asked about where you find your housing. Was I? It is my understanding that in New York, with the thousands of buildings that you could reclaim uh, that were abandoned by landlords <coughs> who couldn't pay the taxes over the years. And, uh, and the jurisdictional problems that don't exist in New York and that you have a city and a county that are coterminous, that these are, these are um, issues that are resolved in New York, but they're definitely not resolved in Los Angeles. By, and, and, and my first question is an expansion of what was said. Where would this housing come from for 73,000 people? I do agree that you, you know how to end it, mm-hmm. uh, but I guess the question, the, the, that is, I guess, we, we, if we had the structures to put the people in. And, and the second question has to do with uh, the nimbyism, I guess, um, and the lack of cooperation among the many cities in Los Angeles County uh, who do not voluntarily uh, take homeless people or, uh, ex- or build homeless facilities. And in spite of many years of asking for cooperation, uh, and I'm wondering if there's state legislation that is going on or that is being pushed that would resolve that issue and make some sort of uniform duty uh, mandatory on the part of the various entities
3: I can I can bite off on the where you find the, in Santa Monica even <laughs> um, I would encourage everyone here to think of homelessness in Echo Park and Santa Monica not in LA County um, except for when you're pressuring your elected officials to do something they should they should be thinking globally um, but in Santa Monica yeah, you know, we did the registry there. We're talking 300 people, you know, and uh, it's when you do it on a community level, the scale isn't as overwhelming, and in in an ideal community, uh, that problem would be solved at the community level. And I mean, we have been able to just squeeze, pe- find every apartment that's out there, even if even a one to one to three percent vacancy rate in a community means in a, in a 10 million. Where people live, that's actually a lot of vacancies, and we have housing specialists that are like a dog looking after a bone, and and I've had conversations where I was like, do you want me to just bring my housing specialists out here because I think they could do it? Like they scour Craigslist, you know, they, they it's 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 uh, it's it's street ball, you know what I mean? Like it's like they're just down and dirty, and, and you gotta you gotta make friends with the landlords, and you gotta you got you gotta win over the landlords so that they call you the next time they have a vacancy because you've become someone that they like working with and, and when you know you've done that when they call you and they say, hey, you want to send someone else over? I've got another unit, because the landlords ultimately want someone who they're going to get the rent paid and if they have a problem, they know who to call, because all landlords have problems with, with any tenant, not just formerly homeless tenants, and they want to know they can call somebody and somehow we've been able to do it. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm imagining that somewhere in this county If you break it down into each little community, either there are those vacancies that exist, or at the community level, you could bring together those community leaders and say, we have a problem. We have 300 people. We need 300 apartment units. And together, at a very local level, solve problems for those specific people would be what I would recommend.
2: We have a waiting list of landlords wanting to put our people in their housing. So we don't have enough. We don't have enough vouchers for them yet. So it, it pays off to do it. It really does.
3: We have a question all the way to your right here. I know it's kind of hard for you to see, right over here.
6: Okay. Um, thank you all, uh, the panelists, uh, for this enlightening conversation and discussion. And oh, I'm, I'm Norbert Chen, and my question is: If it's really so, fiscally. Uh, um, responsible as well as efficient to have supportive housing instead of um, you know, people being on the street, then why should this problem even exist? In other words, if, it's, if it really comes down to dollars and cents better for the, the city as a municipality to provide the housing uh, you know, as opposed to all the addiction problems and ambulances, I, I would think that the, the mayor as well as all the city officials, they know that. So why don't they take you know, these physical considerations and actually implement them? So what is the chief stumbling block, in other words, to, to this whole issue?
3: Uh, you should ask them that. <laughs> I think, honestly, I'm not being a smart ass. You should ask them that because you, what you said is exactly true, and they should answer that. That's what I would say to that.
2: It's a new way of thinking, and you know how threatened we are with new ideas. And the reality of the, ind- the industry that has developed on homeless issues, there's a, lot of resent- there's a lot of scared people that run programs that don't want new ways of doing things. It's a threatening, threatening to their systems. I mean, it's a new idea. It's not, an, it's not a brilliant idea. It's just a very practical idea, but people are threatened by it. In, in the District of Columbia, it's amazing how many people have been fighting the idea of Housing First, supporting housing.
1: And I mean, I think I would say our interventions are not usually, especially in the public sector, always preventative or, you know, upstream. And I think to the points that have been made, you have a lot of public sector funding providers, people that are used to catching the downstream. and. You know, I, I think there's openings, I definitely do, and, and we're talking about how to document the with research what happened in Project 50, but there's a million studies that already exist out there that bear this out. Um, so I think it's a couple things. Of, it is changing a mindset, which is hard to do in the public and nonprofit sector sometimes, but it's also, uh, you know, having the collective will of people, waving, I think, to Becky's point, you know, this is cheaper, this is more humane, why aren't we doing it in our neighborhood?
4: I think the answer also is that sometimes it takes a while to recognize that we have a shared interest. That I think the, the, those of us that, you know, the, the supportive housing providers and the service providers and government and philanthropy and the faith community, um, the business community, philanthropic community, we all have a shared interest in resolving homelessness. I don't think we know it yet, but we really do because it does make sense, as you point out. It makes total sense. We don't always recognize that it is whatever group that we're a part of, that it's in our best interest as well as everyone else's to resolve it. And I think it takes a while for the mindset to connect. I think we're making progress in that regard, um, but I think it's going to take a while. And again, I think that's where you all come in uh, to help that mindset change so that you say, you know, to someone, hey, we want this in, in Echo Park or wherever it may be in Santa Monica. Uh, We want that in our community. We want this issue resolved, and I think the more people that can become involved in that way, I think the sooner we are to that that solution.
5: We have another question down the middle.
6: My name is Sheru Skolshani. A lot of the literature I've read um, on homelessness typically puts the proportion of the overall population that's chronically homeless at about 10 percent, but in Los Angeles that proportion is much higher. Close to 30%. Like, why is that for our region? I, you know, it's,
4: it's, it's hard to know. But I think it's because we've ignored the, the problem for so long, which is why people have been on the street for so many decades. I think part of the difficulty is that because we're so spread out, uh, I think there's a statistic that eight, 8% of the people who live in the city of Los Angeles actually come into the downtown, uh, where there's this concentration of homeless folks uh, in Central City East. But I think part of that ignoring of, of the issue, it wasn't until we were required by HUD to actually count or attempt to count the number. We didn't know how many people there were homeless. They, these were always guesses. Uh, the original count came in around, I think, 91,000. That's been revised down down to about 73 in the county. But I think you know we drive to work in our cars, we park in a you know, garage, we go to our office, and we re- reverse when we go home. So they're hasn't been that much up close and personal visceral experience with homelessness as there has been in more concentrated city cores where you've got mass transit and it's more pedestrian oriented. Because the automobile transit that we use sort of separates us and we don't have that experience of encountering homeless folks and demanding that something be done about it. So I think that's part of the problem. We've ignored it. It's allowed the people who are chronic to remain on the streets for extended periods of time. And, and for those that percentage to increase at the same time.
3: We have a question up in the very front here.
4: Hi, my name is Corey. I live here in Los Angeles. Um, you guys have done a really good job on explaining supportive housing, because I wasn't too familiar with that. But my question is, you guys have each talked about kind of employment services that you guys offer, along with other services that you guys have. Um, I know especially with you, Becky, um, in Queens, the Green Bank has moved into um, into Queens and has had success in the last year. Do you guys have any partnerships with microfinance organizations? I mean, supportive housing is great, and I think that's the first line of defense with homeless de- homelessness. But then, you know, assistance and employment is the next step. Do you guys have any partnerships with microfinance and microcredit?
2: Well, I don't. The downtown bid does not, but the organizations that we work with do. I mean, so it's most of the chronic, though the. Job readiness is way down the line. It's stability, stabilization of the person and their issues. So, we've only been in the business five years, so maybe we'll be needing more. DC has, as I said, 37, 38% functionally illiterate, but 45 or 49% of the jobs require a college degree in DC. So, the, the real problem in the District of Columbia is. There are not enough jobs for uneducated people, even if, they're not, even if they don't have mental health issues and addiction problems. So employment is a real problem in the city. It's 14% unemployment in the city of Washington. That's the nation's capital,
4: 14%. My only experience with microfinance is when I make out my annual operating budget. But... Um, <laughs> I think I would agree that uh, for, for the population that we serve, housing stability, because many of these folks are dealing with multiple disabilities, if they can remain stably housed, for us, that's a success. Now, a lot of the folks uh, actually begin to volunteer and try and help other people who, um, you know, were in similar circumstances before our folks became housed. And so they volunteer uh, with one another and to the larger community. Um, but employment is, is not high up on the, on the, on the priority list
5: another question Beth, to your I, left. I'd
3: like to I mean I, I always am open to that I don't think we have do we, Beth. we don't have a, a, I don't think we have a specific partnership but we we dabbled in curiosity about it and I think would be very open to it specifically for our, our low-income tenants especially because all of our housing is a mix of low-income and formerly homeless and for anybody who would want to do that and and I didn't know that they're in Queens it's great to know if we could talk afterwards love to hear more another question to your left my name is Erica Hooper Um, I think the model of housing first is is really great. It sounds wonderful, but I'm curious about the root cause of why the person became homeless to begin with, so whether it was unemployment or mental illness or um, addiction. Once they get into housing, if that's not addressed, how do you then prevent the homelessness from becoming something cyclical that's just happening again if the root cause is not looked at?
4: Well, I think, I think our experience in Project 50 and, and some of the other Housing 1st that's been done, particularly when you're targeting people who have, uh, using this um, registry where you identify people with the largest number of problems, the way, and, and what we think is, is, is in the initial uh, surveys that were taken uh, by the street outreach folks, is that 4% of the people responded that they had a mental illness. Uh, it turns out that that number is actually closer to 91%. So people in large numbers um, either don't know they have a mental illness or in denial about it and that contributed to their becoming homelessness, separating from their social network, separating from their families ending up in the street not being able to receive adequate treatment uh, to help them manage their illness. So I think um, there's a whole variety of reasons why people become homeless. I think short term people lose their job, they divorce, uh, domestic violence, Um, people that come out of the um, um, uh, foster care system oftentimes aren't prepared to live on their own so there's a whole variety depending on on who you're talking about and I you're right in that those causes have to be addressed so we're not just dealing with the symptoms but we're actually um, trying to resolve that issue that caused the homelessness in the first place
2: and once a person is stabilized the issues begin to be easily much more easily dealt with and people began to want to have a better life once they're stabilized. We found that, which is amazing to me, how that works.
1: Well, and I, th- I think, too, I mean, Chad can speak to this much probably more eloquently than I can, but we forget that you referenced the 80s. In the 80s, all the mental institutions were people were deinstitutionalized, which was probably the right thing. But we didn't put in place any type of mental health uh, system to really handle them. And so a lot of the upsurge you saw in the 80s was a result of mentally ill people just being dumped on the street. So, you know, I I think this focus on mental illness, and we probably don't talk about enough, but having those caseworkers in the building who can deal with that mental illness day to day is a much more effective and humane way than what we've been doing the past 30 years. You have a question all the way to your right
6: here.
0: Um, sorry, you said not to touch, Okay. My name is Zed Null, and I rep, uh, represent the target population you are talking about. I have been homeless six times in four years. Um, I uh, used to be a volunteer for the LA Coalition to End Hunger and Homelessness, that put together the 10 year plan that was sent back by Washington because we had lots of statistics but no action plan to move people off the street of LA. I used to do an independent radio show called Radio Skid Row until I was forced off the air by the Church of Scientology and the administration at People Assisting the Homeless because uh, Scientology is uh, the supporting agency for um, PATH. Uh, In essence, they see the homeless as a cash resource because everybody that signs in, whether they are for five minutes or five hours, Their signature represents a monetary value. Um, As far as uh, Housing First, when I had my radio show, I promoted Housing First. Uh, You failed to mention that Gavin Newsom also has established Housing First in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, The big core problem here in LA, uh, when it comes to affordable housing, is there's more market rate housing being built. People on Social Security, cannot afford to pay for a market rate apartment that starts at $2,000 a month, uh, especially if they don't qualify for Section 8. So uh, my question is also, you can qualify for affordable housing if you make $50,000 a year. So my question is to the panel, uh, with addressing the 73,000 up to 100,000 homeless in the county and city of L.A., um, why do we still see uh, warehousing the homeless as a solution rather than housing first, rather than um, um, collaborative housing? Mm -hmm. Um, um, And that's my question. Thank you very much. Well, I, I, I think I can
4: try and answer that. We, there are those models that you talked about. There is Housing First in Los Angeles. There are a handful of people that are doing it, um, but it's a cottage industry. It needs to be ramped up and taken to scale. Uh, I think the point that Becky made is, is a good one, that we, we don't want to attack all 73,000 people all at once because there's no way to do that, but we need to break it down into discrete communities where pockets exist, where people need this housing, um, and sort of, you know, put pressure on, on the people making policy and, and who we elect to, to represent our interests to address that issue in a more, you know, consistent, comprehensive way. Um, and I think it's happening, but it's not happening enough or in enough places. Uh, and certainly um, we could all do more and we could all work harder to make that happen.
3: Hi, my name is Elizabeth Lott and I have a question I think mainly for Becky. Can you walk us through your intake process for uh, the homeless population that you serve and then also discuss how that's changed as you've learned over the last couple of years? Um, Sure, you mean intake on the streets or intake into the housing or either? From you meeting them on the streets to them being in a home, like what is that process like, how long does it take and how do your social workers accomplish that? Um, Okay, well, uh, it has changed drastically. Um, We used to do the homeless talent competition um, where to get into our units you had to demonstrate that you had insight into your mental illness if you had one and that you were taking your medications where you're supposed to and that if you had any substance abuse issue in the past it was at least six months in the rearview mirror um, and that you had a good uh, rent history, which doesn't make any sense. So we were... um, uh, embarrassingly guilty of uh, what's known in the industry as creaming, you know, like uh, being very selective of who we took in. But, uh, but you could lick the floors in the building, they were that clean, and we had a 99% housing retention rate. And we, the thinking in the organization was, well, the reason why the buildings are so beautiful and everyone wants to live here and why <laughs> we have such well-maintained properties is because we're so selective. Um, and then uh, we I was hired (laughs) and my job became to end homelessness and I was like well the only way I'm gonna do this is if you guys let my people in and um, I was not popular at all in the organization Uh, and what Roseanne did to her great credit was basically said look here's what we're gonna do for we're just gonna do it for 20 people in the first year it's not gonna break the bank it's not gonna kill anybody but we're gonna track it we're gonna measure the impact that changing our, our intake criteria has on building operations and, and complaints from other tenants and, and how many times the security staff, whatever, we have these really, you know, complicated ways of measuring property management and stuff called a management index. And if it's really as bad as you think it's going to be, I'll give you more money. We're still going to keep housing chronic homeless people, but I'll give you more money to take care of it. But it's, if it's not as bad as you're saying it's going to be, then we 're going to do more of it in the future and that seemed to, to calm the staff's concerns about that and they took people in uh, they started taking people directly off the streets um, and and lo and behold, it had absolutely no impact whatsoever on the building and so we still have ninety nine percent housing retention rate and rent collection rate, and you can still lick the floors um, and so um, and we've taken in hundreds of people in the last several years in that way. Um, our intake uh, on the streets were constantly canvassing, and actually all of New York City is doing this right now as we speak, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, there's at least 150, 200 people whose job it is to have their finger on the pulse of exactly who is out on the streets. We get their names, we get their pictures. Uh, We do, uh, on the first time meeting them, something exactly like the vulnerability index survey that we did here on Skid Row. Um, And we can, at any moment, rank order everybody who's out there by who's been out the longest and who's at the highest risk of dying. Well, I, we glossed over this this morning, but um, street homelessness is incredibly lethal. Um, it is one of the most deadly things you could catch, you know, as an American. Uh, and in Boston, they have a cohort of 119 people who had um, these health risks that we look for in our vulnerability index, and uh, 30% of them died in three years. That's how deadly street homelessness is. So we're constantly scanning everybody on the streets for... Who had just like Project 50 on Skid Row? Who's out that been out there longest? Who has the most uh, health risks? And the second we have a vacancy, the next person on the list pretty much goes in. Uh, they they do this sort of cursory interview, but it's mostly just to assess how are we going to need to help them once they move in, not the way it used to be, sort of the homeless talent competition. Um, and and it's really been working for us both in terms of our property management. And in terms of the census reductions, Brooklyn and Queens both in one year had this achieved the two-thirds reductions using that. Um, as far as how long it takes, you know, to be realistic, um, it varies, but to get through to fill out all of the pieces of paperwork you need to fill out, basically in New York City, um, if the person's kind of working with you and really wants to do this, and they're mo- you're able to establish a good rapport and a good motivation, um, I would say, on average, about three months. So, and, 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 and to attribute to Project 50, the average was about 12 days. So, um, one of the great things about uh, being late to the party <laughs> is that you, can, uh, you don't have to make all the same dumb mistakes that other places did, and you can just take the best part of it. You can make our own, I mean, own dumb mistakes. Yeah, like, no, yeah, you don't have to make our dumb mistakes. So, 12, 12 days in LA. Uh, and in fact, it, some people were housed in, like, one day from the day they were met on the streets of Skid Row. <coughs> they moved into Mike's housing, and, and that, you know, I, I don't know if you guys may know this, but really Skid Row Housing Trust, I think, has is, is really distinguished itself in L.A. for their willingness to take on the most chronic and most vulnerable and is a real treasure for, for L.A. County here. It's, you guys are lucky to have Skid Row Housing Trust here.
2: Yeah, my name is Melvin Ishmael Johnson with Drama Stage Qumran Recovery Theater located in the downtown Skid Row area. And I want to ask you about what is your approach to dealing with
4: the uh, the homelessness among the veterans? Well, we see a lot of veterans um, who are out on the streets. Um, we, you know, they're... And, and these are often veterans who've be, become disconnected with the Veterans Affairs system for one reason or another. So they are certainly eligible for our housing. Um, we don't discriminate against veterans. We try and reach out to them the best way that we can. Um, but we have a lot of vets in our housing today, many vets.
2: The advantage of I have is being in Washington and being one block from the Veterans Administration. And knowing the deputy director for homeless issues, so I call him up
5: <laughs>
2: and say, "There's a man at such and such such that such, you need to send a veteran social worker there to help this man today." The silly, silliness of the veteran administration in dealing with homelessness is you have to be sober for six months before you can go into any program. That makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Any one of us can go home and get drunk as a skunk tonight, <laughs> and no one would say anything to us if we stayed in our homes but a veteran has to be sober for six months before he can go into recovery.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
5: now, I'm being a little bit
2: facetious on that one. Uh, there, are pro, there are recovery programs, but they have to be in the recovery program for six months before they go into housing. So I call Peter Doherty on the phone and raise hell with him. So I have a real advantage of that, and I'll give you his name and number if you want.
5: To <laughs>
1: All right, well, uh, thank you for your thoughtful questions, and join me in thanking our great panel.